thank you so much for tuning in to uh, this week's uh, Wednesday night discussion. Um, I've decided to call this uh, um, uh, our Wednesday's uh, Armchair Theologian. Many years ago, uh, I started a blog that I called Armchair Theologian. The reason why was because, uh, for the most part, I don't consider myself a a, a good theologian, uh, like especially not in the in the realms of, of being a quote unquote professional. Um, at the best, I'm an amateur, and so uh, I like uh, every Monday 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 morning quarterback or armchair quarterback that, that thinks that they know better than the guy that's on the ground doing it. Um, I think that uh, for the most part, I would rather be an armchair uh, theologian than a real one. But uh, that being said, um, in my amateur status, I'm going to do my very best uh, this evening to uh, bring about uh, the discussion that we started last week in Psalms chapter 51. The overall series is called Whiter Than Snow. Uh, last week we were talking about cleansing. This week we're going to be talking about some other stuff. And so I encourage you to, um, uh, to stick with us as we go through this, uh, through this discussion. And uh, we'll go ahead and get started. First and foremost, I think it's important that we go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Um, we have a lot of things to pray for in our community, a lot of things to pray for in our church. Uh, I realize that we have a lot of needs. In fact, uh, just my wife and I just got the message yesterday that a very close friend of ours that we worked very closely with in Belgium passed away due to the coronavirus. And uh, he was a, a long-term, long-time missionary um, that really dedicated his entire life uh, to serving others. He started off as a uh, as a late teenager as he entered into Vietnam and served his time overseas in the war, uh, in the army. And then after that, he fell in love with uh, Europe and Belgium. Uh, he fell in love in Belgium. And from there, he just sort of stayed. And uh, he was a pastor. He was a church planter. He was a good friend. And he'll be missed. His wife um, is also struggling uh, with the disease, and she's also struggling now with the grief of having lost her husband and dealing with um, this. So if you could pray for her, I would appreciate it. And continue to pray for those that are struggling in our community, those that are struggling financially, uh, those that are struggling just being inside when they want to be out and be elsewhere. There just seems to be a lot of needs right now. Uh, pray for our, our leaders. Uh, both sides of the fence, and just continue to pray that uh, God continues to move uh, through this time of national uh, turmoil and struggle, and that his uh, His name might be magnified through all of this. Let's go ahead and open a word of prayer. Father, again, we love you and we thank you. We just come before you this morning, this evening, and uh, we just ask that you will bless our time, bless the reading of your word. We ask that you will be with the prayer requests around the hearts of each and every one of us that are listening and, and watching this video and beyond. Lord, we ask you to be with uh, those that are shut in, those that are um, struggling economically because of the virus and having being out of work and losing their, their jobs. Father, I ask you to be with those that um, have lost loved ones. Uh, I ask that uh, through all of this that your name will be magnified that your son's message of love, hope, and peace and what he did on the cross will be um, just spread throughout uh, all the different areas um, of this great nation and beyond. Uh, bless us as we uh, and, and honor your reading of your word this evening as we open up uh, the book of Psalms 
as we open up this uh, discussion. Uh, and I, Lord, I just ask you to guide us and direct us and help us to seek you in all we do and say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in the in the book of Psalms. And for those of you that are still not really sure where that's at, it ought to be pretty easy. Just open your Bible to the center, and it should be right there. Um, most everybody uh, uh, knows where the book of Psalms is in their Bible just because of that fact. Every time they open it, it seems to fall open to that. Um, but Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, both the New and the Old Testament. And so there's a lot of information, a lot of, uh, a lot of good stuff in there. But for the most part, the book of Psalms is a collection of uh, poems, hymns, and prayers uh, of God's people uh, during a time when they were struggling uh, from uh, all the way from Moses um, and through the time of David and Solomon. Even there are some things that were written, we think, uh, during the time of, of the Babylonian captivity, uh, but we're not exactly sure. So I would say open up to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. The one thing we are sure about in the book of Psalms is that it is in the, it is supposed to be in Scripture. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, and it is profitable for us to study it and to know the heart of God. But one of the things that I like about the book of Psalms is that by opening up and reading um, these prayers, poems, and hymns that uh, uh, men that wrote this that were inspired by, uh, by the Holy Spirit, is that we get to not only know their heart, but we get to know the heart of God as well. Um, and so, because this is, this is, these are, all these are, are poems and prayers and psalms to him. And so we get to have a, a greater insight into what he loves, what he cares about, um, as it's echoed and reflected through, through men that genuinely loved him as well. So um, that being said, last week we talked about uh, the first four verses as the first stanza of this great poem. Um, this week we're going to do the second stanza, and that's verses uh, 5 through 9. Uh, but in the process of that, I think it's important that we go ahead and read the whole psalm. And let the, let the words of the psalm just sort of wash over you as, um, uh, as you hear them. Uh, and follow along if you will. Sometimes it's important, when I, when I read through a psalm, I like to read it A, out loud, and B, I like to just read it as an entirety before I try to uh, uh, break it down into, into its component parts because some poems, most poems, most songs are best experienced in the whole, not in the part. So follow along with me as we read through the book of Psalms, chapter 51, starting in the first verse. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make, no, make, make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of, of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. 
then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness, O Lord. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings, and the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in righteous sacrifice, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So like I said, we're going to be focusing on um, the, the second stanza, which is um, uh, verses 5 through 9. If you have a decent study Bible, um, then you'll probably uh, notice that uh, the numbers, as you go through the Bible from any of the books you're in, that the numbers, the verse numbers that are out there, some of them are, are in regular um, print, and some of them are just slightly darker in a bolder um, print. Typically, when that happens, that means that you're entering into a different paragraph. And so the writer of the initial, um, uh, the initial writer of that particular book, or in this case, this particular psalm, has designated that that is, um, in their writing, um, that that is an area where there's a natural break in thought. And this doesn't always do well because you have to understand that mankind uh, put in the verse numbers and chapters. God did not. And so um, this men, men of old have done their very best to try to handle that. And in some of the books that they do the best they can, but sometimes they just don't, they, they aren't able to get it right. That's why when, when you end one chapter in Paul's writings and you start the next chapter, sometimes it feels like you're still in the same, same line of thought. Um, in the Old Testament, though, we have a better, um, a better handle on this, and specifically in the book of Psalms, because each chapter, for the most part, was written by a different individual, and so, um, in the way that it's arranged in there. So we, we have a real good understanding as far as the chapters go, and the verses tend to do real well with, um, with that line of thought. So that's a bit of the, bit of the past. Uh, we talked about this particular psalm was written um, in response to the incident between David and Bathsheba, and how uh, Bathsheba's husband ultimately lost his life, Uriah. And the fact that Nathan the prophet had to confront David about his particular sin. And once that confrontation took place, then, uh, you know, he, his heart was changed. And this psalm came out in response to that. And we talked about that last week and how repentance um, is uh, something that's incredible and important in the life of a Christian. Now, that being said, um, we're now moving into the second stanza as he is pouring out more and more of his heart. Um, and this particular psalm is one of uh, what we would call a penitential psalm. Now, I told you I'm an armchair theologian, so I do have some of these big words in here that are going to be maybe a little distracting, and I may even throw an occasional um, uh, Hebrew word in for you guys. I'm going to try to keep that to a minimum because I know that um, when I do that, sometimes people's minds just check out because you don't speak uh, ancient Hebrew. I don't speak ancient Hebrew. And so bringing that information out isn't always the best. Now, that being said, um, the, word, uh, the word penitential just means it's a penitent psalm. It's a, it's a psalm of 
forgiveness. It's a psalm of, of brokenness. It's a psalm asking for forgiveness from God. Um, there are several of them in the, in the book of Psalms. Um, I'll just give you the list of these. So it's uh, Psalm 6, 25, 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 39, Psalm 40, of course, Psalm 51, that's the one we're in now, uh, Psalm 102, and Psalm 130. There might be a couple others that are not in that list, uh, and if you find one that you would call a penitential uh, psalm, feel free to put it in the comments, and uh, maybe we can keep this discussion going a little bit longer than just our 30 or so minutes that we have together. Um, so that being said, we're starting in, in, in verse 5. And I'm going to tell you, there's verse 5 and 6 um, and verse 8 are tough, tough verses to deal with. They're, they're verses that theologians have, um, have debated over for a very long time um, because they're using phrases in here that is hard to translate. I read out of the New American Standard. Um, there are about four or maybe five translations into English that I would say are the very best word-for-word -word translations to use. Obviously, the King James is one of them. The New King James does a very good job with its word-for-word -word translation. Um, the New American Standard um, and the English Standard Version. There's also one called the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Um, there might be one or two others that you could say that's on that same level. Um, but I choose the New American Standard because I like a word-for-word -word translation. I want to, as, as best as I possibly can, to know that the words I'm reading in, in this here is the exact words that the writer uh, originally wrote in his own language. In almost every single book in the Bible, that does a, they're really good about it. The translators have, have worked hard to be able to make that a reality. Now, that being said... Um, we're still dealing with ancient Hebrew that hasn't been spoken even in Israel in thousands of years. And so um, this book was written in the time of, I mean, this, this particular psalm was written in the time of David. Um, and that's a long, long time ago. And it was written in a time when cultural norms were different than they are now. And so when they use these cultural, what we call idiomatic speech, um, it is difficult to translate. One of the things that I like to use as an example of this is um, some of you that know me know that I used to be a missionary in Belgium. I'd already talked about my friend that we served with overseas. Um, and my friend, or I mean, uh, my time over there, uh, we spent a lot of time in the French-speaking world. And there was a restaurant that was uh, near where we were at. And in French, its name was uh, Bouton d'Or. And those of you that know a little bit of French, and I know a little bit of French, you would say, oh, I know what that means. That means the golden button. And for me, that sounds like a perfect name for a restaurant, um, the golden button. In fact, it's a place that I wouldn't mind going to and, and having a Coke and sitting down and having some, uh, you know, fried fish or, or shrimp or something that's tasty, uh, maybe some French fries. Um, and I was talking to some of our French church members that were over there that were, that were native Belgians. And 
and we were just talking about the golden button. And I said, hey, are you guys going to go to your favorite restaurant? And they said, which one was that? And I said, the golden button in English. And they just, they, they looked at me like I was, like I had just spoken a foreign language to them. And, and I said, you know the one. And then I said it in French, uh, Bouton d'Or. And um, they just laughed at me like I was an absolute idiot um, because I had translated it word for word thinking that I had it right. But the reality is, is that golden button is, an, is a, um, in French, is an idiom for um, a flower called the buttercup. And so this is an example of idiomatic speech that if you were not a native of that time and place, probably wouldn't get the translation well. And so we're rolling into a, a situation like that here with this particular psalm. Because you see in verse 5, it records the psalmist's conviction um, that he was uh, entangled in the reality of sin. Look what it says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Basically, I was given, I was birthed by my mother in iniquity. And then he goes a little further and says, in sin, my mother con conceived me. Now, that kind of starts going into a, in a dangerous place uh, for some people to say that, um, so are you saying that David was illegitimate? Well, that's not the case. We know his, his, his line, his lineage was uh, um, from a mother and a father, married and, and fully vested in the Jewish faith. Um, so that wouldn't be it. Um, was this a situation of, uh, of sin that happened that resulted in his conception? No. So what is he trying to say here? We know that David wasn't conceived illegitimately. So to say that my mother conceived me in sin, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that I was brought forth in iniquity? Well, this is the challenge we run into when we do a word-for-word -word translation, is that we don't always have a good understanding of the idiomatic speech that David was writing in his poetry to us to reflect his heart. Now we know obviously that he's dealing with with a with a contrite heart that he's struggling with um uh he's struggling with the fact that he has sinned mightily against God. We talked about last week that his sin was so mighty and powerful and willfully rebellious before the Lord that he could not even go to the temple and make a sacrifice in response to this sin. In fact, this sin was of such a great nature that the only um, the only uh, punishment for this was to be expelled from the community, to be to be um, uh, to be ejected from the the community gatherings, everything from from being able to go to church all the way down to just being part of the community. And in that day and age, that was tantamount to a death sentence. If you can't work, you can't feed yourself, you can't engage in anything in the community, that can be a huge challenge. And so um, David is, is completely broken by this. He, as, soon as, as soon as Nathan revealed the full extent of his sin through his story of the, of the lamb that was uh, stolen by the, by the, by the powerful uh, Lord, um, he, knew, he knew that he had done something in, in a way before the Lord that was way, way outside the bounds of, of, of normal forgiveness. So his only response was to fall on his face and beg God's forgiveness. And we talked about that last week. And so we say here, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin, my mother conceived me. So what he did not say was that sin is transmuted, transmitted biologically or that the physical conception of his birth um, is a, it was an evil act. 
What he's trying to say is he's using an idiom. He's using a, a, a turn of phrase that he's trying to bring out this idea of being deeply um, uh, uh, broken by his sin. The psalm for David here, his forgiveness was a creative experience, an experience that would be regenerative to him. And it was deeply inside and radically transforming. And this is what he's trying to bring out with this idea of, of that he was that he was uh, that he was conceived in sin. The idea that he was that sin was always there. He was that, that sin was always moving through his life. And this is a challenge that that he has, the challenge that that I think that we all have to deal with uh, when we start looking at, um, at what God is trying to do with us. The reality is, is that sin, sin will seal the lips of any testimony that we have. And it's only when one is filled with the joy of God's salvation that we are able to have a radiant, transforming testimony. David had essentially, through his sin, cut himself off from the fellowship of God, and his testimony was in many ways permanently damaged. In fact, in the end of David's life, the one thing that God condemned him directly for was the death of Uriah, Uriah the Hittite um, through the process of the adulterous relationship that he had with Bathsheba. And so this was a major turning point in his life. This was a time of, of true contrite repentance. And so he was trying to say that in the essence here, um, it's not so much that, that genetically he is a sinner, but that he is a sinner from the very beginning, that his entire life was one of a sinner moving through it. Um, and it's only through the salvation that God brings to him that he's able to have that transforming thing. So victory over over sin is what essentially saying is only possible when you have that new creation in that experience that only God can give you. That broken and willing spirit is our preparation for what God wants to do with us. The spirit of holiness works out of that brokenness for a divine purpose in our life. This is why this is why David is trying to bring this out so clearly. From the very beginning, he was a sinner, and he never had claim on God. God always was the one that was in a position of the ability to call him righteous and to give him the forgiveness he so desired. Look in verse 6, because we have a, another, um, a similar uh, problem with idiomatic speech. And we see that in verse 6, it says, Behold, you desire truth in my innermost being. This is so funny um, when you read this, because in some versions it has a different translation to this. And trying to understand this, you know, I, I read all the English versions that I get my hands on um, to try to get a sense of what the translation is. And some of them are just way out there, and I'm thinking, how in the world did you get that from the Hebrew? Um, some of them, like the New American Standard, does the word-for-word, word, and they don't make a comment on it. It's just a word-for-word word translation. So we have, um, you, desire, uh, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Um, this is a challenge. What in the world is he trying to say here? What is David trying to bring out? What is the Holy Spirit trying to bring out through David's pen um, for us? Um, and if you just read it straight up, it's like, oh, he wants us to be truth, truthful in our innermost being. We need to be true to ourselves. Yes, true to ourselves. And so when people, when you meet people in the store and they try, or in the, in the, in the, out in the world, and they try to make statements like, um, 
like you be you do you and I'll do me and and we're fine or you have your truth and and so it, it sort of lends a little bit to that idea that you that truth is subjective and personal and has to be found as on an individual basis which is not true uh truth is truth whether we like to accept it or not and we can rationalize um away truth um in our own brain but in the reality truth is truth and you can't get you can't get uh, get part of it you can't get away from it so was David saying that? Was he trying to say a simple, you know, you be you and you find your own truth? I don't think so, uh, because the Bible says that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so um, his truth is always going to be standard and straightforward. Um, so what is he really saying here? I think that, that um, if you look at some of the other translations that do more what we call a dynamic equivalent um, translation. You see that in the New Living Translation, the New International, um, and uh, one of the ones I found called Today's English Version. Um, these aren't the greatest, and for deep, in-depth study, I wouldn't recommend them. Um, they're, they're good sometimes to get an essence, especially when we're dealing with poetry um, that's in the Old Testament, but when it comes to deep study, I go to, I go to the word-for-word -word translations first, and then when they're a little tough to understand, I will sometimes branch out if I can't find what I'm looking for in the, um, in the original language. And so um, the uh, English, uh, today's English version has it this way. You delight in a sincerity of heart. I like that um, because it, what we're talking about with this level of sincerity, if you follow that line of thought, that this sincerity is, is, is concerned with an absence of hypocrisy. So we're talking about, we're stating that absence of hypocrisy in a positive light. We're saying with genuine thoughts and genuine accent, um, action. So in essence, what, what, what David is trying to bring out is you desire truth in the innermost being. When he says that, what he's saying is you desire an honest, authentic lifestyle. This is a challenge for a lot of us. For a lot of us, we have many faces that we wear. We have the face that we put on when our, when our kids bring that really horrible looking art project home from school. And it's that time of year where they bring the Mother's Day cards, the Father's Day cards, or the Happy Birthday cards. And, and you want to be encouraging. You want to be loving. But, but you're looking at this and you're thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do with this, right? Now, if you're a loving and genuine parent, you're going you're gonna to look and you're going to smile. You're going you're gonna to rub the hair on their head. And you're going to say, good job, little Johnny. It looks fantastic. Here, let's put it in a place of honor on the refrigerator. Um, and uh, But in the reality is, you, know, you, you and I both know that your kids, like my kids, aren't Rembrandt. They're not Picasso. You know, they're not going to be producing great works of art. Um, but their sincerity of heart is there. And so we need to be as genuine and echo that genuine sincerity back to them. Not because we think they're the phenomenal artists. We're doing this because we know that their intent is from a genuineness. Okay? A genuineness. And so in light of that, we see the genuine nature is what God is looking for, that authenticness. So rather than putting on that hypocritical mask, we need to realize that God wants the truth. He wants the truth so that when, when somebody sees you in private, it's the same person they see in public and vice versa. This is a challenge for Christians. We oftentimes, especially in our culture today, 
we teach quite a bit about the idea that that what you do in the privacy of your own home is your own business. And to a point, I would I would agree to that. It is sort of your own business, what you do in the privacy of your own heart. But it's also not, because Scripture talks about the fact that God sees in secret. He sees the things that happen when no one else is around. He knows the utter depravity of the human heart. He talks about it all throughout the Old and New Testament. And so in light of that, we need to, we need to recognize that our goal should be to be as authentic as we humanly can. Um, and that means that when we're fighting and screaming with the kids on the way to church, as soon as we get, get within you know, 500 feet of the front door, we don't plaster on the fake smiles. We let our family know that we're struggling because sometimes we can put on the fake smile so much that we lose sense of who we really are. And God loves an authentic, real, sincere Christianity from us that comes from a pure place that's a reflection of him through us, not a reflection of what we think him through us is supposed to look like to the world around us. So that being said, you got this genuine thought and action that he's trying to bring out. And some of the languages that... Um, um, that, are, that the Bible is translated into um, not just English, but also into French and other languages. Some of this stuff comes out even more clear. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going to look at um, uh, something that the French Common Language Bible brings out, which I thought was kind of interesting, too. Um, so truth in the present context refers to the truth of God's wisdom. Um, and in some languages, it's impossible to say to say that in words. Um, for example, doing the right thing from the heart or following the true God, words of God is what God requires. Um, that would be the essence of what the psalmist is saying, but it doesn't come out in the in the translation. Um, the The New English Bible uh, has it this way, and I think this is kind of an interesting um, uh, the way this one says. It says in the whole verse, it says, "Yea, though thou hast hidden truth in darkness." Through this mystery, thou dost teach me wisdom. Um, like I like it. I don't know if that's the intended meaning of the whole verse, but it does bring out that essence that we're talking about. As I mentioned a moment ago, I also wanted to quote from you the, the French Common Language Bible. Now, I'm not going to quote it to you in French because my French is terrible, um, but uh, I'll just give you the English uh, translation of the French word. And the same verse, it says, but what you like to discover in the human heart is respect for the truth. Make me know wisdom in the depths of my consciousness, our conscience. Um, I like that. Um, so in looking at this, it says in verse six, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Um, so in, in the way that it's translated into the French Bible is, what you like to discover in the human heart is respect for the truth. Is that not a, a phenomenal way to read this? Um, isn't that a, 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 a more clear way of looking at this? Um, make known to me the wisdom, make known to me wisdom in the depths of my conscious, conscience. You know, that's a pretty powerful um, statement um, that the, the, uh, the psalmist David is trying to bring out. So when you read the words, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and the hidden part of me make known this wisdom. Understand what God is trying to get from you. He wants an authenticness. He wants an authentic, real, contrite forgiveness. 
The reality is until we admit to ourselves that we are truly sinners, we can never really repent. We can never really fall on our faces before the Lord in an authentic way. He says later in this psalm, that in verse 17, that a broken spirit and a contrite heart is the sacrifice that you desired, O God. That's a pretty powerful statement if you think about it. But to say that, that that's what God wants the most is a broken spirit and a contrite heart, it makes you wonder sometimes when these negative things happen in our life, what God is trying to say. Is he trying to use these negative situations that largely we put ourselves into uh, to bring us to a place where we can have true repentance? I think so. In fact, um, every circumstance that we find ourselves in, good or bad, every relationship that we find ourselves connected to, good or bad, I think is an opportunity that God uses to conform us to the image of his son. There's a really good book on marriage out there that I love um, to, I've read a couple times. I've taught it a few times in um, in churches that I've been that I've served in. It's called Sacred Marriage, and the subtitle of the book is uh, how God is using your marriage not to make you happy, but to make you holy. And I think that's a powerful statement. The circumstances around us, in us, and through us, our relationships that we find ourselves embroiled in, good or bad are there for a reason. They're there to conform us to the image of his son, to make us holy. When scripture says, be ye holy, um, that's what it's referring to. It's not talking about you can just turn a switch and suddenly be holy. It's about the process, what what the um, some of the more liturgical faiths that, that are outside the Baptist world will call sanctification. It's the progressive process of conforming to the image of Christ. And honestly, it's a lifetime process experience, one that will never be completed until the day we step out of this body and into glory and stand before our God and King and we say, you, you alone are my righteousness. And it's only when we can do that that we finally had that perfection moment where God has done what he has promised to do by giving us eternal life and we can finally embrace him as a son and, and daughter of the living God. So that being said, we're going on to verse 7. This is a fun one. It's not a difficult one to understand, but there's a lot of imagery in here, right? Imagery that's pulling out these, these metaphors, these similes, um, these, these, these phrases that in English, you know, if you don't have a good understanding of biblical um, history, you might not get this. So starting off in the very beginning, it says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Let's just stop there for a second because this idea of, of using a hyssop is something that if you've never read much in the Old Testament, you're probably not going to understand this. But hyssop for the Israelites brings them back to the Exodus. It brings them back to the days when Moses, the great emancipator, the one that, that liberated his people from the bondage of sin and led them through the wilderness right to the very edge of the promised land, right? That allowed um, uh, God to use him as a conduit to, to bring forth mighty miracles in the name of God. It was a powerful moment for the life in the life of the Jewish people. And so 
Moses is never very far from the lips of the Jewish people. They're always thinking about him. And the, the, when you start talking about hyssop, immediately every single Jew that is reading this is going to be thrust instantly all the way back to Exodus, all the way back to the homes in Egypt in slavery when the final plague was being pronounced and God gave, an, gave a way out for his people, a way of salvation. You remember that story. Pharaoh was the one that chose the final Pharaoh, the final, um, the final plague, when he condemned to death um, all of the firstborn of Israel. Well, obviously that didn't happen to Israel because mm -hmm. God used that proclamation as the final um, uh, plague, the tenth plague that was going to infect the nation of, of Egypt. And so the, the pathway out of this was he told Moses to go to the elders to to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood of that lamb and use a hyssop, which is a which a group of branches with with little leaves and it's a bundle of uh, of these branches and they would they would dip it into the blood and they would paint the blood over the 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 post and the lintel of each house and when the angel of death passed through the community um, of uh, through the nation of Egypt, that anyone any household that had the blood covering over the doorpost and the lintel would be spared and everyone without that covering would be destroyed. So ultimately, David is bringing in that powerful imagery from the, from the book of, of Exodus, from the stories that came about from the days of Moses. And he says, this is how you find purity, is only through the covering of that blood. Now for the Jews, they didn't completely understand that. They they connected that sacrificial blood to the sacrifice and the time um, that they would have these this day of atonement that they would they would ask God to forgive them of their sins. But we know because of the book of Hebrews that the the blood of goats and bulls would never truly wash away sin. And what David is asking for in this in in the in the, in the first part of this stanza or this verse is is purify me with hyssop, purify me. He's begging for the most extreme version of, of, um, of, of purification you can have. He's also bringing out the idea that the hyssop was also used by Moses to purify and to sanctify, sanctify the temple and the instruments going into the temple or the tabernacle. Um, and so during that time, in fact, in Exodus, I think it's chapter 12 and Leviticus and Numbers talks about this, um, the idea of, of sprinkling the instruments and the book of the law and the Ark of the Covenant and all of the things that would be used in the worship to purify them with blood from a hyssop. And so by asking this, he's begging for a, for, for a, clean, a purity and a cleanness that has otherwise been unknown. In fact, you could actually use this as, um, uh, as the idea of, of being descend that's a word not descend but d slash or d hyphen sinned to be um i wrote this down in my notes to be unsinned for the sin to be ripped from you this is what he's asking for this is the imagery that he's that he's going for this is a purity on an extreme level and i tell you this kind of purity can only come from someone who has been truly broken um you don't you don't get this from somebody that's just casually saying, "Ah, Lord, 
Sorry about sinning, you know, you're, you're up on the roof on the top of your house and you're, you're banging nails in, the hammer uh, slips and you hit your thumb and you, you, you slip out a curse word, you suck your thumb and you're like, oh goodness, I just cursed, right? And, and you're like, oh God, I'm sorry. And you just throw that sorry out there if you even bother to do that. But you and I both know that the next time that you slip, the next time you fall, you're going to do the same thing probably. And and so that sin is going to slip out there. This is not that kind of a sin. It's not th that kind of a recognition that you've sinned. This is a purely, I am so unbelievably broken, and I do not expect any mercy from you. But that's the point of mercy, right? It's unmerited favor. It's receiving something that we could never gain on our own. And so David is begging God for this kind of purity that is on this extreme and ultimate level. And then we get to verse 8. I told you in the beginning of this that verse 8 was one of those other verses that was going to be a tough one. It's going to be one of those ones that are just going to be like, oh, what are you trying to say? Look what it says here. Make me hear joy and gladness. We like that, right? Oh, Lord, in the... You know, it's, it's like in one of the movies or a television show or, or where, um, you know, the clouds part, the rainbow comes out, the sun shines, the light just appears, angelic music comes out. Let us hear joy and gladness. We love that, right? That is, that's the beauty of that imagery. But then it's followed on by this wonderful little verse, again, word for word translation. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Wait a minute, what? I can almost hear like the breaks in your mind just being applied, right? Squealing into, into, into an utter stop. Joy and gladness, broken bones, and those bones that are broken rejoicing. What in the world does that mean? Well, and this is one of those times when I can honestly say that in the Hebrew, it means exactly what it says in the English. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Think about that for a minute. Think about what God is trying to say to you. Think about the idea and the understanding that the discipline that God levies on his children is sometimes hard to bear. My father, my father used to tell me occasionally when I would do something wrong, and I hardly ever did anything wrong, right, as, as a teenager and as this young kid. I'm being facetious, by the way. Um, my father would often, as he was reaching for the paddle or his belt, would say, boy, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And like every kid going through a whipping, I, would, I, w I wanted to say, yeah, right, <laughs> because I will gladly switch places with you and you can be, and, and, and then me whipping you will hurt me worse, right? Um, it's only when you become a parent uh, that you want the best for your kids and you start to see that when you're doing the kind of disciplining that, um, that's required uh, for your kids, that it's tough. And some days it's hard to be a parent. Some days it's hard to reach for that belt. To not reach for that belt in anger. To not take away that privilege. To not do whatever it is that you do when you are disciplining your child. Whether it's time out or whatever. Sometimes that is hard. And it's harder on, on us as parents than it is on the kids. 
And in the case of this, we need to recognize that God does discipline his own. And there are times that God will allow the sin in our lives to run its course. And sometimes that sin comes out in the form of pain. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say every time that something bad happens to you, it's a disciplining of God. I will say that God will use every bit of pain in our life for his glory, whether it's the pain of discipline or whether it's just the pain of, of trial and suffering that comes from without. But I think it's important that we recognize that when we're in the midst of our trials, and right now many of you are in the midst of your trials, many of you are sitting at home struggling, whether you're sick, whether you're whether you're you have friends and family members that are sick, or whether you're just sick and tired of being in the house and you want to get out with people, whatever the trial is that you feel like you're going through, you have to understand that in the midst of that trial is when you are that where God is commanding you to rejoice. So much so that when our bones are broken because of our own sin, because of our own mistakes, it's in that brokenness that we have to turn to God and rejoice and thank Him for the brokenness. That's not always easy to do. Now, in theory, I can say that. In theory, I can say, oh, yes, just... Just just enjoy this moment of, of trial and tribulation. When I'm standing at the foot of a hospital bed and I say to somebody that's going through whatever problem they're going through, broken bones or potentially, you know, life-threatening disease, oh, just rejoice, right? It's a different thing altogether when you have to go through this on your own. When we go through this in our own lives, you know, when you get the call from the doctor and he says, I need to have a talk with you in person, face to face. And you know you just had a test that was going to see whether or not that dark spot in your lungs is cancer. Can you rejoice during that time period? Or when you get that phone call about your, about your child or your parent or your loved one. It's at times like that that God expects us to rejoice as well. And we can rejoice through tears. We can rejoice through suffering. It's just not easy. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. The psalmist continues to say, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Here, David is, is finishing this verse, this stanza of his poem, with an interesting um, structure. Now, for those of you, again, I told you, armchair theologian, for those of you that are, that are armchair theologians like me, um, and you like the idea of, um, uh, of, of, of knowing a little bit about, about the structure and stuff, I'll tell you, the entire structure of this um, psalm is what we call a, is what is we call a, ch a chiastic or a chiastic um, uh, psalm. It means that it's, it's the structure that the, that the poet, in this case David, the psalmist, is using to bring it out. When I was in, when we were in school back in the day, um, you probably heard about uh, one of the structures that's very common in our poetry, iambic pentameter. We see that throughout um, uh, many of, of uh, uh, Shakespeare's works, the rhythmic speaking of the words in such a way. Um, it's the same thing with the Hebrew poetry. They used a chiastic method, and it's basically they, they say things and they repeat it, and they say it and they repeat it in a certain format, almost like a, like a Japanese haiku in a, in a weird way, and so in a Jewish way. 
And um, uh, so in this case, it's a, it's a chiastic way of bringing us back to the first two verses because verse 9 is in the exact center of this psalm. Um, and so this whole psalm sort of floats around this idea. And David wanted to bring us back to the reason he wrote it, right? He's begging for the forgiveness. He says, hide your face from my sins, right? Hide me into the crook and the palm of your hand. Allow me to stand before you sinless. Blot out my iniquities. Did he not say that same thing in verse 1? When he says, your, and it says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Here he says the same thing. Blot out my iniquities. Hide your face from my sins. Wash me clean. It's a beautiful picture. And it's a good place for us to end today. So as we come to the end of this time, we're going to do this and we're going to close in prayer. And I encourage you to be thinking about your, um, your response to tragedy and trials. I want you to think about your uh, plan and pathway as you move forward in this sanctification, this progressive conforming to the image of Jesus. Here's the deal. When you accept Christ as your Savior, when you bow your head before him because you know you're a sinner and there's no way for your sin to ever be able to be covered in such a way for you to be able to Bring yourself into heaven. When you say, I am a sinner, and you repent of that sin, and you turn from that sin, and you move towards God and God alone, okay? And this is, in essence, of what, we're called, what we call salvation. When you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that he is the only way that you can have true salvation, okay? When that happens, then you begin this progressive sanctification, this journey with Christ, Ultimately, God has called you to be his image bearer. And that means something. You know, I have four, I have five children now, okay? And four of those children come from my body. One has been gifted to us by God. And when my children that had my last name went out of my house and into school and into the world and the public and I wasn't around them, I had to remind them occasionally, guys, when you're out there, you represent me. And when you do stupid things, that speaks in many ways to me. And in a community that knows that I am the pastor of the church, when you do something that's incredibly stupid, in many ways, you are making a statement about me. And so when you're outside, remember whose name you bear. I would remind people that. So I want to remind you this today, that you bear the name of Jesus Christ on your soul. You are his image to a world that doesn't know what Jesus looks like, really. Remember that as you're moving. So I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer, and then we're going to close our time here, okay? Bow with me, if you will. Father, we thank you for our time. We thank you for opening up your word. We thank you for the opportunity to see what it means to truly have our bones that you've broken rejoice. Father, I ask that you will forgive us our sins, that you'll focus us on your word, that you'll give us the strength of character and the, the, the vision, the straight vision that we need to, to follow you every day of our lives. Father, I ask that whether we're walking clearly or whether we're picking ourselves up off the ground where we've fallen, 
Father, I ask that you never depart from us, that you will always be that friend that sticks closer than a brother, that you'll always be there when, you need, when we need you. And Father, I ask that you'll give us the strength and the courage to be your image bearers into a world that needs to know what, that, what you look like. And Father, I thank you again for all that you've done. Be with the requests that we've laid in front of you and help us to focus on all the things that you have asked us to do. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask, we ask all these things through the name of your Son and our precious and amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, as we end this week's episode of The Armchair Theologian, I encourage you to go with God.